taking your Bibles, turn with me first for a New Testament reading to Galatians chapter 3. If you are using the church Bible before you, page 973. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we come again before your throne of grace together. We come, Lord, seeking the help that we need for this very task of reading and preaching your word and hearing it, believing it, and obeying it. Father, we come needy sons and daughters of the Most High, but we come expectant that you are kind and merciful, you are good and plenty toward those who would humble themselves and draw near to you and, and cry out to you by the spirit of sonship for all their needs. So help us, Lord, we pray. Help us in our hearing of your word. Grant us grace to recognize your authority speaking therein. May we be bound and subdued to your authority. And Lord, we pray that we would be refreshed, comforted, built up, directed, encouraged, emboldened by all that we hear to the praise, honor, and glory of your name. Lord, help us, or we cannot be helped at all. Please come, O Father, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Galatians chapter 3, let's read verse 7 through 9 before we turn to Genesis 17. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham, and the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Turn with me now to Genesis 17 for our Old Testament reading there. Verses 1 through 14. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations." No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you, 
And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you, throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Verse 26, that very day Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised and all the men of his house those born in the house and those bought with money from a foreigner were circumcised with him. This is God's word. <clears throat> Let us start this morning by traveling in our minds to a sheepfold. A sheepfold. And what do we see? We see a circular stone wall, maybe four feet tall, a stone wall not made of cut stone, not quite that fancy. This is a stone wall made of field stone, stacked one upon the other. And inside this sheepfold are several sheep. There are some male sheep. They are called rams. I looked this up on Wikipedia. No, I didn't need to. <laughs> I learned a few things over the years, and so have you. The male sheep are called rams. The female sheep that are also in the sheepfold are called ewes. And then there are several young sheep, very young, known as lambs. Who owns these sheep? In this case, they are owned by the shepherd. But does he own them all? Does he own even the little lambs? Yes, he does. If the ewe belongs to the shepherd, the lamb she has given birth to belongs to the shepherd as well. And she has not given birth, of course, without the assistance of the ram. All lambs born into the fold belong to the shepherd of the flock. And what then does the shepherd do with those little lambs? He puts his mark upon them. He puts his ensign upon them, his badge upon them. So everyone will know they are his own. Now, what I am preaching this morning is not life on the farm. I am preaching life in the church of Jesus Christ. The church is the fold, and the Lord of the church is the good shepherd. And the lambs born into his fold are the children of believing parents. And the good shepherd who owns the lambs born in his fold puts his mark upon them. And that ensign, that mark, is the sacrament of baptism. By it, Christ says, 
these little ones do not belong to the world. They belong to me. They do not belong to the devil. They belong to me. They do not even chiefly belong to their parents. Oh, what scandal that is for some. But it is true. They do not even chiefly belong to their parents to do with them whatever they please, nor do the lambs even belong to themselves. They belong to me. Through baptism, Christ says, I promise to forgive and cleanse your soul of all your filth and corruptions by my blood and my Holy Spirit. Through baptism, Christ says, I promise through my mediation to renew your heart, fill you with the comfort of my love, and assure you of my Father's goodness toward you. Now, it is our instinct to say something about faith at this point. And we will indeed say something soon. But let us remember, before there is faith, there is a gracious announcement. A gracious announcement from God. That announcement is the gospel. The scripture says, faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. Romans 10, 17. Baptism is the visible word of Jesus Christ. It is his ordinance. He appointed it. He even gave us the very formula of words to use in it to put the name of God upon the children. It is his word. It is Christ speaking graciously even to the littlest lambs in his fold, saying, I promise you life. I promise to cleanse you of sin. I will be your God, and you shall be my people. Now, what can you do with such good news? Beloved, there's only one thing you can do with such good news. Believe it. Believe it. The Lord speaks to us in a very peculiar way that boxes us in with only one thing to do. Believe. And so baptism has its harvest in those who have ears to hear. This is the same reason Peter said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Where did he say that? He said that in his Pentecost sermon, Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus. That is the word of Christ. Baptism is the word of Christ. What did Peter say in his very next breath? For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. That's Acts 2.39. On what authority did Peter Include your children in this. On what authority did he include your children in the gracious promise? The promise is for you and your children, he says. Well, as an apostle, Peter is under the authority of Christ. He is not a man under his own authority. And the authority of Christ comes to the apostles through the word of Christ. 
So Peter knows that your children, the Lord's little lambs, in the Lord's sheepfold, cannot be kept out of the promise. Why? Because by his word, the Lord of the promise had long ago announced to Abraham, who would be the father of all who believe, that Abraham's covenant children, who are they? Not children of the flesh, but children of the spirit, all who would believe that Abraham's covenant children were to receive the sign of the covenant, the sign of promise. And so Abraham himself and his children were circumcised. We heard it, Genesis 17, 7. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And a few verses later, in Genesis 17, Christ says, you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Circumcision was a sign that Abraham and his offspring had been brought into covenant, into an arrangement, an agreement with sovereign grace, whereby God promised to perform himself all that needed to be performed to fulfill covenant and keep the promise. God would grant repentance. God would grant faith. God would grant the mediator, the substitute. God would do it all. And this he did through the Messiah, Christ our Lord Jesus. Now, why does God include the offspring of believers in this promise? Abraham's offspring, your offspring. Why does he include them? Beloved, because this is the primary and ordinary way God has chosen to build his church. It is not the exclusive and only way, but it is the primary and ordinary way. As Peter said in Acts 2, God does call those who are far off. So through our offspring, it is not the only way God builds his church. He calls those who are far off. But it is his pleasure and design to call many who are near. And none get nearer to believers than their offspring. The offspring of Abraham are very near. The children of believers are very near. As Christ was coming into the world through the womb of the Virgin Mary, we should remember how Mary herself announced what was happening. Luke 1, 54. This is also known as Mary's song or the Magnificat. She says, quote, He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Why then, under the old administration of the promise, was it circumcision that was the sign of this promise? Why the bloody rite? God called for a cutting away of the natural man to show Israel that their natural condition from birth was sinful and under condemnation. And they needed a fundamental change in their nature. Thus, the bloody rite showed forth both divine judgment 
and it showed forth divine promise. It declared the gravity of man's condition under the first Adam, and it declared the promise of God to remedy the condition. And so we hear these words in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. Circumcision was a sign of something that God was going to do to this fallen, wrecked, ruined nature of the first Adam due to original sin. Circumcision then was a sign of a righteousness that would come to those circumcised of heart, come to them by faith alone. Abraham received this sign after God brought him to faith. He was not circumcised and then brought to faith. Paul makes this argument in Romans 4 very carefully. It be an excellent afternoon reading. But Abraham receives the sign of circumcision after God had brought him to faith to show uncircumcised Gentiles that they can come to saving faith without circumcision, without having to become Jews. Abraham, though, put the sign of circumcision on his son the same day he put it on himself. He put the sign of circumcision on his son Isaac, excuse me, Ishmael, and then Isaac, to show the circumcised Jews that they would need God to cut their hearts, that they would need God to circumcise their hearts, to bring them to be possessors of that righteousness that God alone justifies. Being born of a Jewish woman wouldn't be enough. The heart needed to be cut by the inner sword of the Spirit of God, applying the redemption of Christ to those dead in sin. Paul makes this argument in Romans 4. In Romans 2, Paul says, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. We all say amen, but we must not think that what Paul has just said there vacates circumcision before the birth and work of Christ. Paul did not say what he said in Romans 2.28 to give us reason to dismiss circumcision under the administration of the covenant of grace during Moses. No, he said it so that we would, he would establish the sign of circumcision. It was always pointing to something much deeper, something requiring God's own hand, not the hand of a man. <clears throat> so, this brings us to another set of questions. Does God call for the sign of the covenant to now stop being placed on infants since, that, since Christ has now come? Paul says in Colossians 2 that Christ on the cross is the last circumcision. Christ being torn unto death in our flesh on the tree is the final bloodletting. It is improper to continue circumcision for 
religious purposes because Christ has completed it. If Christ has put an end to circumcision, does God therefore call for the sign of the covenant to stop being placed on children and infants? No, he does not. God still requires a sign and a seal of this covenant of grace to be put upon the children of believers. Where does Christ give the church such authority for this sign that we are calling with Christ and Peter and Paul baptism? Where does Christ give the church such authority? Well, it's in Acts 2.38. I read it once. I'll read it again. And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. The Apostle Peter is giving us that authority, but he is not instituting this sign. He is not instituting this sacrament. It has already been instituted. Where? By the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew 28, verse 18 through 20. And Jesus came and said to them, the disciples whom he had gathered on the mountain after his resurrection, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. There's one primary verb in the Great Commission. It is this verb, make disciples. It is followed by two participles. And the participles reveal how disciples are to be made. The two participles are baptizing them and teaching them. Beloved, isn't it not a wonderful thing that our Lord Jesus Christ, as he announces his authority to his disciples, showing them his resurrected body, Isn't it a wonderful thing that he tells them exactly how to make disciples in his kingdom? He says, make them by baptizing them. And yes, I immediately can tell that there's no presence of the word offspring present, like it is in Peter's Pentecost sermon. But I am going to simply make this case. We should read the Great Commission in the light of Genesis 17. Because what do we hear in the Great Commission? Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. The very nations that are repeated four times in Genesis 17 to Abram, who is now Abraham, the very nations that he is said to be a father of, they are the nations that the disciples and the church are to, are to baptize. And this includes all the offspring of those who have faith, which is the description of those who have faith in Genesis 17 and Galatians 3. Listen to Galatians 3.8. This is a wonderful text. It is worthy of memorization, of course, 
all scripture is worthy of memorization, but this is a very helpful scripture to move to the top of your list because it gives you a hermeneutic on how to interpret the, the entire Old Testament. A hermeneutic is a method or system of interpretation. Listen to Galatians 3.8. Scripture preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all nations be blessed. In you, Abraham. In you, Meaning through your offspring, not sons and daughters of flesh, but sons and daughters of promise. And they are to receive the sign of the covenant. And so says Peter in Acts 2. After much administration of the sign of the covenant in the early church, Paul is almost looking back on what he has now witnessed and participated in when he writes to the Colossians in chapter 2, verse 11. In him, Christ, also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Baptism, according to Colossians 2, 11 and 12, has become the outward sign of the covenant. And who are we to give this sign? All of the covenant children of Abraham. All of his offspring. Who are his offspring? Paul tells us several times in Galatians 3. Abraham's offspring are those who have faith. And the children of those who have faith. It is true we do not find in the New Testament a verse that ever specifically commands the baptism of infants in that particular language that I just used. It is also true that the New Testament never specifically forbids the baptism of infants. This matter is resolved because we, we are right to want it resolved, are we not? We do not do things in the church of Jesus Christ because they've been done that way before. That's the authority of recent history, or even antiquity. Antiquity is no authority in the church of Jesus Christ. It may be a friend, but it is no final authority. We do things according to Scripture because Scripture is the word of Christ. It's the authority of our King to do what we do. So you are right to be wrestling with whether or not we should put the sign of the covenant upon the infants of believers if you indeed are wrestling with it. I remember being there myself. The man behind this wooden pulpit used to be a Baptist preacher. The only difference was I was less sanctified. Beloved, doctrine is even part of our sanctification. Let us not keep it outside when the Lord brings it to our doorstep. The New Testament records 11 baptisms. Three of those 11 are large groups being baptized. Another three of the 11 are specific individuals being baptized. Our Lord Jesus Christ, Saul in Acts 9, the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts 8, and the remaining five of the 11 are household baptisms, entire households. 
We heard not too many weeks ago about a woman named Lydia who believed the gospel near a river at a place of prayer. The scripture says that the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. Those household baptisms look very much, do they not, like the language of Genesis 17. You and your offspring. Put the sign on you and your offspring. You might still be asking, well, what good is this sign? By receiving the sign and seal of the covenant of grace, our Lord is graciously giving to his church and to her children a fuller description of the gospel. This is the very language that the Heidelberg Catechism uses, question 66. What are the sacraments? The sacraments are visible, holy signs and seals appointed of God for this end, that by the use thereof, he may the more fully declare and seal to us the promise of the gospel. In other words, baptism more fully declares and seals to us the promise of the gospel, more fully than not being baptized. Just as a kiss and a ring more fully declares the love between a bride and groom. Think of a child who has a very wealthy relative who dies and leaves that child a large sum of money. The child cannot claim the money. The child has no legal authority to claim the money, cannot write his own name or even read, cannot stand before the judge. What should the parents do? They should claim that child's inheritance for him. Then use the money for the child's development and education. Now, the child may grow to reject that inheritance. He might be one of the new radicals who says, I don't need any stinking charity. Take that inheritance back. But the rejection, note this, it is a rejection of grace. The child has already seen how blessed he is by the inheritance. The child has already seen that the inheritance has been freely offered. That it indeed is not his parents' inheritance, it is his. How does baptism then, as the Heidelberg says, how does it more fully declare and seal to us the promise of the gospel? Well, maybe this conversation might help answer that. And with this, I close. A father speaking to his son. Son, I want to remind you today that you too have been baptized. But daddy, what do you mean? Well, just like we saw at church today, when you were little, God poured cleansing waters over you. When you could not talk or do anything good, God came to you and did something good. That is called grace. God's grace is the only way we can go to heaven. God's grace is about God giving himself to us in Jesus Christ, not about what we give to God. But daddy, what did the water mean? Son, the water was a sign 
like dad's wedding ring. The water is God's sign that God will cleanse you of all of your sins. God's spirit is like the water. God's spirit comes into our hearts and cleanses our hearts of all its filth and corruption. Jesus died for our sins and has gone to heaven. He now sends his spirit into our hearts to clean us and keep us for heaven. Daddy? Yes, honey? Well, what am I supposed to do? Son, you are supposed to believe everything I have just told you. Believe God put his mark of grace on you with baptism when you could give him nothing. Believe that by it, he says, I love you and will keep you and never forsake you. Believe him when he says all these things. Believe God is your God because everything Jesus has done for you. Daddy, I do believe it. I do believe I belong to God. Son, that's wonderful. Let's thank him now and ask him to help us keep believing and keep living for him until the very end. Let us pray. And so, our Father in heaven, we do come to ask again that we would believe all that you have said in our baptism, that we would believe that all that you have promised has been done, all that you have signified in our baptism is complete in Jesus Christ, and that it is ours, as surely as we have been cleansed by the waters of baptism, a sign of your spirit. Father, this is how we are to receive the word when it is preached, to believe it. This is how the gospel is to be responded to, to believe it. Oh, grant us all, Lord, to believe and continue to believe and not apostatize, not fall away, Continue to believe in all the gracious, good news that has been declared over us when we couldn't even read or write. Lord, we thank you and praise you for all the ways that you have made this gracious announcement in the world. And Lord, even though men are of of wicked heart yet, even though men are, even baptized men and women reject the Savior and are lost, even so, your word goes forth and it is not void. It does not fail. It accomplishes all its purpose. And we thank you and we praise you, O God, for the purpose that is accomplished in us in the salvation of our souls through your Son, Jesus Christ, crucified and risen from the dead. In his name, amen.